0: Tonight on Arena, Paul Giamatti, Devine, Joy Randolph, and director Alexander Payne on The Holdovers, and a new Disney drama on designer Cristobal Balenciaga. 5155-1 is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. With the release of Sideways 20 years ago, filmmaker Alexander Payne and actor Paul Giamatti proved that a movie about a depressed wine nerd could become a critical and commercial success. That film also created the so called Sideways effect on global sales of Merlot, thanks to our hero's loud distaste for that particular red wine variety. Giamatti and Payne have reunited for the first time since Sideways to make the whole Lovers a seasonal story. In an elite set in an elite New England boarding school in 1970, where Paul Giamatti's curmudgeonly Mr. Hunnam has the thankless task of babysitting the students with nowhere to go over the Christmas holidays. Eventually, his lone remaining charge is Angus Tully, 17 year old child of a divorce, whose newly married mother ditches him in favor of going on a honeymoon. Tully is played by an extraordinary newcomer, Dominic Sessa. He was a student, in fact, at one of the schools the film was shot in when he was. Cast. And the complete and completing the dysfunctional central trio for the vacation period is Divine Joy Randolph, a school cook, Mary Lamb, who faces her first Christmas. Without her son Curtis, who was killed in Vietnam. Film was a critical critical success in the US on release late last year. And just last week it was a hit at the Golden Globes and the Critics Choice Awards, and those in the new in the no, rather, predicting that Paul Giamatti could give our own Killian Murphy a run for his money when it comes to the Oscar for Best Actor. More of that and on. Earlier today, I spoke to Golden Globe winners, Devine Joy Randolph, and Paul Giamatti. As well as director Alexander Payne. First up, we'll hear my conversation with Paul and Alexander. I began by asking Paul Giamatti about the close family
1: connections he has to the world of elite academia. Yes, that's correct. Indeed, my all, all everybody in my family was teachers, going back a couple of generations, and I did indeed go to a school kind of like the one in the in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but your, your dad, A. Bartlett Giamatti, was president of
0: Yale. I mean, we're he talking a very high player. level of, of of experience here.
1: He had a very, yes, very, 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 very successful academic career, for sure. Now, when
0: when your family come to see a film like this one, Do they come with a whole new set of perspectives that perhaps Uh, uh, you don't want shared with you?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, not not a lot of them are around anymore, but the ones that do go and see it, uh, it does seem very familiar to them. Yes. When I watch the movie, it's deeply familiar, almost in a weirdly disconcerting way. When I watch it, it's so familiar that it's it's kind of odd to to watch. Yeah.
0: So you're telling me that when you had those Latin and Greek phrases to part uh, to send out, you knew exactly what they were. You didn't need to be looked down at the I at the script to, for the translation. It, I didn't need
1: to work on them at all. No, absolutely. I I don't remember much of my Latin, and I never had Greek. I never did. Did you do Greek? Not ancient Greek, but not ancient Greek. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, no, I I, I still I, I didn't have I didn't have a good grasp of Latin anymore, unfortunately.
0: Well, he the, Paul Hunnam certainly has a grasp of it, yes. and he gives us yes. he gives us plenty of it. And um, to what extent, Alexander uh, Payne, is the reading of a phone book related to Latin? Because was this a kind of audition for Paul Giamatti? You got him to read the phone book at some uh, event, I believe, possibly subsequent to the
2: making of the film. I, I see you've done some research. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but I, was, uh, I was proud to host uh, Paul Giamatti in a public interview in my hometown of omaha nebraska and to uh make the point that i think he can make even the worst dialogue work <laughs> i pulled i produced a phone book and he read from it and he did so brilliantly
0: i guess there were some uh, citizens of that particular part of the world delighted to have had their name read by paul giamatti
1: that's a nice thought i hope yeah. so yeah i hope so
0: Uh, Obviously, the reason he was cast was not his brilliance with the phone book. Uh, You you have a long uh, relationship. It goes back to sideways, which is 20 years ago now.
2: Yes, this year marks its 20th anniversary of release. Yes, indeed. What was it on what
0: friendship, what professional relationship was established on that film, would you say, that has
1: carried through to this film?
2: Hmm. We just really enjoyed working together. Yeah, we
1: enjoyed each other's company. I mean, I suppose we we became friends because of that movie, but yeah. And we just, uh, we had a really easy uh, working uh, relationship
2: that's just carried over. And I like looking at him in movies.
1: (laughs) That's nice. Yeah,
0: I, I guess one of the things that strikes me, I mean, this is a story in some ways, about family. It's an odd family. They're not blood family, uh, Alexander, but they are a family, and that is something that interests you. It's the kind of thing that you have to create on a film set. It has to be like a family, and all, I guess.
2: I think that's true, and I think I, I've been fielding some questions today, like how did those three actors, you know, have such good chemistry? And yeah. I said, well, probably it started because we were all just happy to be making this movie together. yeah. yeah. And they know they're the leads and happy to have those good parts. <laughs> and everybody's got a job, so that, everybody's happy. That basic happiness extends then to the characters. Yeah,
1: Chemistry, a, it's, a, it's a mystery. You know, otherwise, it wouldn't be, you know, I mean, it's just a mystery a lot of the time. Who knows, too?
2: Plus, well, film has a wonderful capacity to lie. So you're you're just suggesting that they have chemistry and the audience thinks that. Yes, that's also true.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and there are also chemical reactions or chemistry that can cause, you know, negative aspects to things. Problems, yeah, for sure. And and I have to say, your character's attitude to his pupils, let us say he's not always the most encouraging.
1: Salve, gentlemen. Your final exams... I can tell by your faces that many of you are shocked at the outcome. I, on the other hand, am not, because I have had the misfortune of teaching you this semester. And even with my ocular limitations, I witness firsthand your glazed, uncomprehending expressions. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. No, it's, uh, I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can.
3: I'm supposed to go to Cornell. Unlikely. Please, sir, my test's going to flip out. Yeah.
0: A whistling Wagner and oh. handi- handing, out, <laughs> handing out failure tests, uh, with the yeah. results of tests where everybody yeah. has more or less failed. Not the nicest man in the world.
1: No, not the nicest. Thank you for recognizing I was whistling Wagner. I yeah. think you're the first person that's actually recognized I was whistling Wagner. Thank you. Um, no, he's not the nicest man in the world. But Alexander makes a really uh, important distinction between nice and kind. I, he's not a nice man, but he can be a kind and decent man mm-hmm. underneath it all, which, I, which is, I think, boy, that gets uncovered uh, as the movie goes along.
0: And and there is an argument, or is there an argument, again, going back to that uh, education background of yours, sometimes to be a good educator, you you can't be
1: nice all no, the time. No, I agree. I, I don't think he's wrong in a lot. I mean, he goes too far. But, but I think that his sense that of discipline and rigor and things like that is not wrong. I mean, I think it's a good thing. There's a middle ground. I mean, he's he's missing the middle ground.
2: He's going too far one way. But yeah. Yeah. Alexander were you gonna say something I, I I sorry hold on I had had <laughs> I you know I I had had a teacher a Latin teacher who was like that but do you is there a way of instilling rigor and discipline without using fear uh
1: yeah I think so I think you probably could do that um I mean my father was I think a pretty rigorous and disciplined mm-hmm. teacher
2: without being without terrorizing people yeah. I, but the use think... of fear, I think, extends back through the centuries. Yes,
1: I mean, no, definitely. I think that it's a tradition of of beating it into people, and this guy's just carrying that on. But I don't yeah. think you have to do that, no, I don't think so.
0: I guess a director has to take a, a leaf out of that book as well,
1: Alexander. <laughs> that's true, that's true. I just break out in a rash. He's a benevolent dictator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about, you obviously
0: are... Really good at bringing out performances from young, like relatively, if not totally, inexperienced actors. Dominic mm. says, as Angus Tully, who is the young guy that ends up, you know, in, in the threesome that makes up the dynamic of most of the film, and um, the Angus Tully character, the Davine's character, Mary Lamb, and of course Paul's character of Paul Hunnam, an extraordinary
2: debut film performance. Yes, extraordinary. And uh, Sean, not to take your question too literally, but I didn't have to pull it out of him. He mm. readily offered it. He's just a. We found a very talented young man, an uncannily talented young man. Yeah. No wonder you're afraid of women.
1: I am not afraid of women, I'm sorry, Jesus. I shouldn't have said anything. It's... Dr. Gertler says I don't always give consideration to my audience. Ah, and who is Dr. Gertler? My shrink. Hmm. Has Dr. Gertler ever tried a good swift kick in the ass? Okay. All right, now your turn. Go ahead. Tell me something about me. Something negative. Something that's negative about you? Sure. Just one thing? Just one.
0: Ironically, within the milieu of the, the, the film's setting, that's where you found him.
2: Correct. It's kind of a miracle, a minor miracle that he was a Senior, you know, fourth year, last year student at one of the boarding schools where we were actually shooting. It's really something. He'd yeah. never been in front of a camera before. Never. Star of the drama club, but that was it. Yep. Did a couple of plays at the school and that's it. And w- was, is on a path to becoming a professional actor when he was, you know... He was applying to acting programs at university.
1: He was already pretty polished. It's crazy how professional he already was. I was going to yeah. say, he's,
0: he's quite far down that path already, isn't yeah. he? And and for you, Paul, to see a young actor like that coming in, you mean you must remember early gigs and early jobs yourself where you were coming into very experienced rooms or onto very experienced sets. What was your feeling for Dominic this in, kid, in
1: that situation? This kid had it easy, i got to tell you. I remember when I went into these things, it was I was just thrown in the deep end without any. Nobody gave a damn whether I knew what was going on or not. Now, the kid, the kid did have it. I mean, it's a nice situation for him. But it was nice to be around somebody who's so fresh and new to it. Made me kind of see it through those eyes again, wow. which was nice. It did. Yeah, it really did.
0: And that, that dynamic that, that builds between the, the two of you, it is almost father-son. And, and father-son is a big theme in terms of both
1: your character and his character. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. I certainly developed an affection for Dom that helped the affection that the guy eventually feels for the other character, for sure. But, um, yeah, he didn't need a lot of help from me. He didn't need a lot of paternal protection from me.
2: No, but you've said that really the help you offered him was simply giving him confidence boosting. Like, hey, you're you're doing great.
1: Reminding him of how great he was, yeah. 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 The the decision...
0: uh... Alexander, because I think um, David Hemmingson in his original screenplay had it in and around the 1980s. You pulled it back to the 1970s and that look that you give us, even at the top of the film, it feels like I'm at a film in the 1970s. And I mean that in, as a compliment, you know, the look of the film on scene, the look of the, the, the titles, the sound, the crackle of, of, of Silas falling onto LP. How important was that aspect of the film for you?
2: First, not that it matters that much, but let me correct something at the first part of your question. His pilot, this is not a version of his pilot. This is a completely different story. Mm. And Yes, that one was set in 1980, but completely separately we decided to, again, not very important, but anyway. Um, Well, it was super important because that's what we were doing. You know, I wanted it to look and sound like a movie made in 1970 to some degree. I thought it would be really fun to pretend I was a director working in 1970. And uh, I'm happy with it, with how it worked out, mostly because it doesn't feel like a period movie. It feels like a contemporary movie made in 1970. That's the aesthetic I wanted.
0: And does that help in terms of the performance side of things, Paul? Do you think you're back in yourself back into the
1: 1970s? How does that work? Yeah, I enjoy anything, period. And so you know, it's always more evocative. The costumes, the sets, all those things are are wonderful for actors, you know. And um, but for for sure, and and the the textures of the clothes and the textures of the seventy, the sound of it, the feel of it was yeah, always important. Yeah.
0: I wondered what parallels, if they are useful at all, Paul, that you might have seen between Paul Hunnam and the character in this in the Holdovers and Miles from Sideways. I mean. They're both intelligent. They're both sensitive. I hate to point out they're both hopeless with women. They're both chronic uh-huh. underachievers and
1: both functioning alcoholics. Yes, that's indeed true. And I suppose there are similarities. I didn't, I mean, you could answer this better than me. I don't know that you know, there You
2: a... could have also focused on what's different between them. Well, <laughs> that's true. I definitely like this
1: character more. You know, I mean, I don't... They. they, they there, there are all those similarities. And I think this guy is... He's a tougher guy. He's a less self-pitying guy. He's got more backbone. I think he's kind of, he's he's his sense of sort of, uh, his sense of self is stronger in some ways. I I, I kind of like him. I like him mm-hmm. more, this guy.
0: I, I, but actors will often say, you know, you, you you can't afford sometimes to like or dislike your characters. Is that part of the, because his, his unniceness, if you like, you 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 talk about his kindness being important there you kind of yeah. have to ignore in some ways his unniceness, niceness if that's even a word
1: but i i never i liked this guy from the beginning i don't even think i mean he's not nice but i think i recognized that kindness and i i think even from the beginning i just always thought this guy i mean he's a bit of a prick but he's a but he's a fun prick and he's a guy who's you know and he's a smart prick and he's no, no, I just, I liked this guy. So that helped a lot with it. I, I, I never, I never had a barrier to get over. I never had some sense of like, oh, I have to find what I like about this guy. I just did like him. And that might be because I grew up around a lot of these people and I liked them. They're weird, they're odd, they're eccentric, you know, and, and I like that about these guys. I was right. This is why I hate parties. That was a disaster, total disaster. Speak for yourself, I was having fun. Let's take Mary home, make sure she's okay, and we'll come back. Out of the question. Come on, would you give me a break? God, I was hitting it off with Elise. No, oh, the Denise, are you kidding me? This poor woman is bereft, and all you can think about is some silly girl. I don't need you feeling sorry for me. See, I'm just saying, this was the first good thing that came with being in this prison with you. Need I remind you that it is not my fault that you are stuck here? Do you think I want to be babysitting you? Oh, no, no, I was praying to the God I don't even believe in that your mother would pick up the phone or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a submarine or a flying fucking saucer father's to take you dead. Up.
0: And of course, uh, Divine, Divine Joy Randolph as, as the, the character of Mary Lamb, she is ready to put him in his place. But there is a beautiful dynamic between the two of them. He mm. treats her, which is absolutely beautiful, as a total and absolute equal. She yes. treats him as a total and
1: absolute equal. That's a, yes. a wonderful dynamic. It is great. It is great that they start off on kind of equal footing, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. A, it is a nice relationship, and it becomes sort of husband and wife in a funny way. That's mm-hmm. nice too. Isn't yeah, it? there is a touch of that. She also,
0: uh, dare I say, it, she 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 has to mother him a little bit, <laughs> be
1: his mammy. She mothers both of them a little bit. Yeah, she mothers both of them a little bit, and she does it well. She's a good mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, clearly a good mother. I have to mention
0: the elephant in the, the room, if you don't mind, Paul. Um, the Oscars. Oh, <laughs> you yes. know you're on, you know you're on Irish Radio right now. You know <laughs> that you know that Killian Murphy.
1: Boy, I hadn't even thought of that. Wow. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> he's um, he's. You know, actually, one of the nicest things about this process that I've, we've been going through is actually getting to know him. Yeah. He's a really, really nice guy. And he, I've really enjoyed meeting him and because I've always admired him. I think he's a fantastic actor. But he's a really, really good guy. I like him a lot. He's a really nice Did man. you watch Peaky Blinders? A little bit. He's mm-hmm. terrific on it. He's always great. And mm-hmm. so uh, that's been a really good thing. That's been a really good thing. So and I just want all all of Ireland to know that I admire Killian Murphy. <laughs> Did you watch Oppenheimer? Yes, I thought he was great.
0: then. yeah, I thought he was great. Well, listen, if he doesn't win it, we don't mm-hmm. mind. We don't mind if you win it. Oh, yeah. that's nice of you to say. Thank <laughs> you.
1: I have Irish blood in me, by the way. I oh have yes. Of... yes,
0: tell I us do. more. Tell us more.
1: I don't know where they're from, Callahan, I had there's Callahans on my mother's side of the family, but I'm not sure where they're from in Ireland. But uh, I do have Irish ancestry. Well listen, the Callahan's of wherever they are, I expect to get a text
0: from them on five one double five one in the next five or ten minutes and I shall immediately dispatch it to you, Paul Giamatti, so that you know where the Callahan's live and you can go and either show them your Oscar or get Killian Murphy to come with you and show them his Oscar. How's that?
1: Okay,
2: great. Sounds good. Deal.
0: <laughs> Paul Giamatti, uh, Alexander Payne, thank you so much for being with us, Stephen. Thanks and for having thank me.
2: Very good to meet you. Yeah, nice to
1: meet you. Thank
4: Take you. care. I had you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that?
1: Oh, I don't know. I suppose I failed someone who richly deserved it. Oh,
4: the Osgood kid? Yeah, he was a real asshole. Rich and um popular combination around here.
1: It's a plague. Uh, and you?
4: You'll be here too? All by my lonesome. My little sister Peggy and her husband invited me to go visit them at Roxbury, but I feel like it's too soon. Like Curtis will think that I'm abandoning him, you know? This is the last place that my baby and I were together, not including the bus station.
1: Well, I look forward to your fine cooking.
4: Oh, no, no, don't do that. All we've got is whatever's in that walk-in. No new deliveries till January.
0: Hi, Devine. Listen, when you when you read this script and you read the character of Mary Lamb, what struck you about her? What was your way in there?
4: I think her resilience and her tenacity. She wasn't someone who just was quiet, and uh, she had a voice and a perspective. And I love that she fully felt her feelings and her emotions out loud and didn't try to hide them, especially during that time. Historically, it really says something about her that she was able to uh, and chose to not dim her light or who she is uh, and grieve out loud. And because of it, they're all these broken things able to come together and become whole. I thought that was really beautiful.
0: And the grief that she has to express, it's its multifaceted.
4: Exactly. And it's, uh, you know, if you use the stages of grief as a diagram, they don't conveniently happen in sequential order. And sometimes two and three things happen at the same time and they contradict each other. It's its not something really you're in control in either. Sometimes it feels like it's something that happens to you. So I wanted to show all those different nuances
0: Alexander uh, Payne spoke about when casting you, that the background in comedy, people may well know you from Dolomite Is My Name uh, with Eddie Eddie Murphy, that that background in comedy was hugely important. Initially, you know, you think comedy, grief, are are they bedfellows? Uh,
4: Yes, because I think that a lot of times, at least with this character, sometimes in the midst of grief being all around you, you have these moments of brevity uh, through comedy. Sometimes people tend to find humor, odd humor, or have the more of a need to laugh because of these heavy feelings that they're feeling. And also I think, at least in how he describes it, is that then it allows so that it's not a deeply dramatic, over-dramatized one note. We really try to focus on totally mm-hmm. giving as many nuances as possible and not leaning too, too, too heavy, and to the grief for it to be stereotypical, or just too much, where you couldn't even enjoy it.
0: There are mm. times when when uh, Mary Lamb gives Paul Humdum some really dirty looks and some real put downs. That must have been a joy to do.
5: Well, yeah, I think
4: you know she's a boy mom, <coughs> you know, and so boy moms are different, as well as in many ways, Paul's character is a a big old teenager who needs love as well. And so then she kind of adopts this kind of like tough love for him and it works for him. No, 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 a cup of tea is fine. I've eaten already.
5: And you gentlemen, did you save room for dessert?
1: Hmm, what's that?
5: That's our signature dessert, Cherry's Jubilee. Mm -hmm. Sounds great.
1: (laughs) Bring the young vandal here, Cherry's
5: Jubilee. I'm afraid I can't. The dish contains brandy. Same deal with the bananas foster.
1: Yeah, but doesn't the alcohol just
4: burn off? Mm. It's still against the rules, ma'am.
1: Fine, I'll order the cherry jubilee. We can share it.
4: I can't allow that either.
5: Can we say it's his birthday? It's my birthday. Oh, happy birthday, young man. Let's get you a slice of cake or some other age-appropriate dessert. Christ on a
1: crutch. What kind of a fascist hash foundry are you running here?
4: Uh, excuse me, ma'am. Do you, by chance, have cherries? Yes. Great. And do you have ice cream? Yes. Fantastic. Can we please get cherries and ice cream to go?
1: And the check.
5: Right away. Bitch. Mm.
0: There you go. Devine, Joy Randolph, uh, Dominic Sessa and Paul Giamatti there in a scene from The Holdovers. I was speaking with actor Devine Joy Randolph as well as Paul Giamatti and director Alexander Payne. And that film, The Holdovers, goes on general release in Irish cinemas this coming Friday. We will be reviewing the film on tomorrow night's arena. Cristóbal Balenciaga, a new six-part Spanish drama series available on Disney Plus from this Friday. It tells the story of the Spanish couturier and the 30 years he spent in Paris From the early and uncertain days of 1937 when he moved there to open the Maison Balenciaga through the decades when he dominated as a couturier, even the diva Coco Chanel looked up to. Barbara Power has been watching the first two episodes for us and she's with me in in studio this evening. Before we get stuck into what the series does and the story that it's telling, Barbara, Balenciaga, put him in some kind of context for me in terms of, what he did for Haute Couturier.
5: Well, he was um, undoubtedly one of the most admired figures in Haute Couture. And on the day that he died in um, 1972, he was 77 at the time, women's Wear daily, the fashion Bible ran the headline, the king is dead. And the reason for that is, as you said, you know, there was huge respect from, this is a man that Christian Dior called the master of us all. Chaparelli said he's the only designer who dares to do what he likes. But Coco Chanel, who was not one to be throwing bouquets around, <laughs> I have to have say, thought. particularly no. to rivals, she acknowledged that he was the only couturier in the truest sense of the word. The others are simply fashion designers. And by that, she meant that he could cut and he could sew and design. He could do it all. And that is because of his upbringing. So he was... He's a Basque designer. He was born uh, in 1895. Very humble beginnings. Mm. His mother was a seamstress, yeah, he which learned is
0: really interesting. Yeah, he
5: learned to sew at his mother's arm. And at 12, at the age of 12, he went to train as a tailor. And it was only afterwards when a posh client came along in his late teens and sent him for formal training. But that gift, that tailoring mm. gift, being able to design, if you like, from the inside out, That's what made him stand apart and the other couturiers in his world could see that.
0: In fact, there's a wonderful quote from, I think this is uh, maybe stated at the top of the first or the second episode, I can't remember which. Haute couture is like an orchestra whose conductor is Balenciaga. (laughs) We other couturiers are the musicians. We follow the direction he gives Coco Chanel.
5: Yeah, I'm not surprised you picked that one up. Um, yeah, she was a tricky. He had a very tricky relationship with her.
0: Yeah, she was certainly very important in that initial stage, those initial stages yeah. of his career in in Paris in in 19, starting in 1937. Yeah, Spanish Civil War, etc., happening at the same time. So go back to when she first. How did she first come across his work? Was well, it was it in, Spain?
5: in in the. Um, In the series, it says that she saw, she recognised it when he was in San Sebastian. Mm. So he opened there and in Madrid and in Barcelona. And um, you know, the, in the show, it says that you know she brought Carmel Snow to the to his first, uh, which is a, a lovely, Irish, show, connection by the way is a lovely Irish connection,
0: which well, is a lovely Irish connection. Can explain think. who she is and and, and yeah. why she's so important?
5: Yeah, um, so Carmel Snow um, is was from. She was Carmel White, later, later became Carmel Snow. She was from Dalky and couldn't make and you <laughs> couldn't make that up. And um, her mother was a dressmaker. And herself and Balenciaga just got on famously. When she first saw his work, she said, a great light has shone in the world of fashion. And she was very faithful to him. She wore him an awful lot. Interestingly enough, this is the Irish. So she was, sorry, she was the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar in the States. And she is the woman who wrote about Christian Dior's new look in 1947. But then in 1951, when he brought out a completely different look, a very untailored look that sat out from the body and it went down like a lead balloon and Carmel, the Dubliner, started to clap. And she stood up in the front row and kept clapping because the French audience were so besotted with the new look, which was the cinched in waist, the full skirt. And she believed in Balenciaga. And it was really only after the war and into the 50s that he came into his own. Uh, He found his own stride. Mm. He believed in himself. He looked back at his Spanish heritage and he introduced the cocoon shape um, she stood up for him when he did what was called the chemise dress, and she said it is neither a sack nor sexless. And um, got which love is her. What,
0: which was the kind of accusation that others had made about yes. the work.
5: Yeah. He got he got criticism, but they, in in as I said, Carmel loved him. She wore him constantly, and when she died in 1961, she was buried wearing a red brocade.
0: That says a lot now that that somebody like her would choose one of his dresses to to be buried in. (laughs) Presumably she did choose it. Maybe somebody else chose it for her. I'm not sure. But Mm -hmm. uh, however, so to this series then, which now we are in, obviously, we're in a drama. We're in a fictionalised version of of his life. And uh, you've said a couple of times in the series, it says, in the series, it says, does it veer? A lot from the facts or is there a sort of a dramatic license there that for the most part, you who would know that history and know his story, can you overlook it or is it irritating if you know the facts?
5: I want to go back, and I desperately want, to, and I'll get you give you the name of the book. It's uh, Mary Bloom's B L U M E, the master of us all, Balenciaga, the workroom of the world, from two thousand and thirteen. She is a huge expert on Balenciaga. I felt in the series. I don't know if Coco Chanel would have been quite a supportive, dragon. Carmel Snowlong. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, but... Um, it
0: makes for better drama though. It
5: makes for better drama and uh, they do stress that it is a work yeah. of fiction. Yeah. And I think purists might see that the timeline isn't correct. But... Um, But, you know, this, uh, I've only seen two of the six. Yes, yeah. I don't know. Can you view them all together? No, Um, I think
0: we were only given two to preview and I'm not sure whether all will be available. We'll check that, whether all of them are going to be available. Yeah, but my point is that because,
5: well, I don't speak Spanish. um, uh, So I was watching
0: the subtitles
5: subtitles and I felt, not that I was missing things, but I kept stopping it to have a better look. And I think, you know, the most you would look at is two together because you'll stop, you know. yes. If you're watching with someone, you'll be a pain because you'll have to keep stopping and you'll want to see the clothes again. So it's 45 minutes long. I would think you'll probably maybe watch each episode twice. It's very rich. The costumes are gorgeous. And what I loved, like uh, there was a Spanish, she's an Academy and Emmy awarded uh, or nominated costumier uh, from Germany. And she redesigned uh, a lot of his pieces. But importantly, the House of Dior and the House of Chanel loaned pieces for the the show, which acknowledges the relationship. And again,
0: for somebody with the eye that you would have and for those who are uh, fashionistas, seeing those items hung on people in the in this well, drama now, will will add a lot I'm guessing
5: You got there ahead of me because I don't know are they clothes I haven't seen those episodes right. yet and like I have visited the uh Dior archive in Paris and everything is kept at a certain temperature in bags and zips I don't know did they loan clothes yeah, would they or was a <laughs> it jewelry it could have been accessories yeah. things like that
0: So uh, the 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 drama itself It takes a peculiar enough starting point, it seems initially, but he was famously very, very private. So this series starts in 1971 at the funeral of Coco Chanel.
5: So he fell out with Chanel. She allegedly said something to Women's Wear Daily, uh, a sort of revenge interview when he refused to do a photograph with her for the publication. And they fell out. But he turned up at her. funeral Funeral, at the Madeleine Church uh, um, in 1971. Uh, Actually, the anniversary was at at the weekend. She was Mm. 53 years dead. But um, sadly, within a year, he was dead. So he didn't really get, after closing his Maison 68, he had a very short retirement. But it starts um, and then, you know, a journalist approaches him.
0: This is a woman called Prudence Glynn. Is is this a real person or would she be known within the fashion world as a writer in that particular area?
5: I hadn't come across her, but you've caught me out there. i I meant to, um, I only watched them earlier today, and mm. I wanted to look at her. Th- uh, look look her up because she I'm, looks
0: like somebody who is who was involved in human interest rather than yes. specifically. If she was a big fashion writer, you'd know yeah, her
5: because I was uh, reading uh, Justine Picardy, who's written, you know she's, she worked on mm. Harper's Bazaar, fantastic writer. And I think if she was for real, she, Justine would have referred to her, but you know.
0: Yes, yeah, and I'll come
5: back to you tomorrow night and tell you <laughs> I found to, her.
0: Yeah, um, so we, we, she wants the interview, which yes. is kind of so the the way the series is set up is that we're seeing the yes. interview being played yes. out in in front of her I think it's a eyes. device myself. Yeah, exactly. It's just a kind of a, a framing device for the mm-hmm. beginning and end, yeah. mostly of of each episode. Um, when he came to Paris then in 1937. Who was with him? Who came with him? Uh, and and he was coming from and he was in the Basque region. Important to remember that as well. He was coming from the Spanish Civil War. He was. He uh, He comes with a big anti-Franco guy. The guy who's financing him yeah. is against Franco, but he's. It's very. This series is very careful to have Balenciaga constantly tell us how apolitical he is. Yes. Does um, the actor protest, protest too much?
5: That was something I was saying to one of your colleagues earlier on. So he arrives with his um, then boyfriend who was designing hats. And ironically, the hats were getting more, uh, there was more interest in the hats in the early shows than the clothes. They were the clothes. dramatic, yeah. yeah. Um, but he, uh, the, The couple who were backing him, I I felt very sorry for him. And for any young designer starting off, the last thing you would want is a backer sitting on your shoulder in your salon day after day. Um, So they had been anti-Franco and Mm. there were issues. They couldn't go back. So he felt a real pressure to perform. And there was a lot of self-doubt. And I think, you know, designers who, you know, nowadays in fashion, you have a lot of people stepping away from fashion for a season because they're finding it quite difficult to get the fabrics in There's a lot of pressure and they'll appreciate, you know, how nervous he was. And when the business wasn't taking off, he was really worried. Um, But by episode two, then we have the German Nazi occupation. And and uh, remember,
0: obviously being a Jew was a a big problem, uh, clearly at the time of that Nazi occupation. But being gay for those, for uh, Valenciaga and the boyfriend, that was a real problem.
5: Yeah. And... um, it's it's covered. You can see how tense he is. Um, he has to take reluctantly. He has to take business, um, from the girlfriends of the Nazi officers. But as he says at the end, uh, to his backer, we survived when the war is over. We survived, and it's really when the fifties come that he really. Finds his personality and his strength, and that's why I can't wait to see episodes. Yeah, I was three wondering that because
0: there is a kind of a and I I took you. I find the same watching the, the with the subtitles. You, yeah. you can't you can't walk around and listen. You yeah. have to sit and watch and look at the screen because you're you're looking at the translations as well. Yeah, but I I I did wonder, you know that early stage of his career he was often accused of not being dramatic enough not being you yes. know ostentatious enough does that ostentation comes in does that come in the designs later into his yes. life in yes. the 50s and 60s it's so in the 50s that's what you would be expecting and hoping to see in the latter in the latter parts of this yeah. series
5: um, but you know while I will be watching with a keen fashion eye I think this is a show that you could watch with non-fashion people you yeah know. it's um, it's there's big production values and I thought the the main actor um Alberto, Alberto San Juan Alberto San Juan yeah yeah I thought he was uh, particularly good and he had to go off and learn French and Basque actually to do that role. Yeah, I, I wondered
0: know. about that too. I'm sure there's great subtlety if you know this, yes. if you know particularly if you know Spanish and if you know Basque yes. you know we can I could hear the switch from Spanish to French. Yeah. But that Spanish Basque mix I'm sure that adds a kind of a, a layer if you know the language.
5: And the three, the three directors were all Basque.
0: Yeah.
5: So, um, you know, it, it certainly gave me a long uh, list of things that I want to do. I want to go back to Getteria, where he's from, where there's a museum. Um, I want to start, you know, um, diving into more books about... Carmel Snow and the 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 one I mentioned there, Mary Bloom's mm. book about Balenciaga.
0: But I suppose this is a kind of it would be, it, would it serve as a, a a kind of a taster, accepting that it is a fictionalised version, a taster to send you off to those books. Absolutely,
5: of, absolutely. And
0: you became a big fan, I think, of Balenciaga during uh, the pandemic during the lockdown. Well, just
5: it? on the eve of the pandemic, it was February 2020, and I was in Paris to interview Christian Louboutin. The the people in the sharing cars with me had just come from Milan, and they were talking about this virus, and everyone was trying not cough and I thought, oh good grief what's happening? So I took myself off to the uh, Azadine Alaya Museum which is just off uh, Rue Saint-Honoré and there was a um, Balenciaga exhibition on and Azzedine actually ended up collecting his pieces when the Maison closed in 68 someone knew, someone in the sewing yeah, room yeah. he collected the pieces and then went on to collect pieces by Chaparelli and other designers so it's um, it's been a, yeah. a love affair that's been growing uh, and, and which is why I was so thrilled to to see this, this yeah, series come about. And you're looking about. forward to the 50s and Absolutely. 60s uh, when yes. it gets
0: into that in the later episodes because it becomes more dramatic. Well, it sounds as if it's worth certainly sticking with. Uh, I, I will stick with it to see what happens in those later episodes at, at your suggestion, Barbara. Thank you. If you're wrong, I'll be And I'll be
5: you. back to you about <laughs> Miss Glynn, all right? <laughs> all right. Uh,
0: Christabel Balenciaga is the series that we've been talking about, available to stream on Disney Plus from January 19th. The Irish Association of Youth Orchestras returns to the National Concert Hall in Dublin for their annual Festival of Youth Orchestras next month. The Festival of Youth Orchestras is an annual celebration of Irish Youth Orchestras' talented members with a great variety of music played by young people for young people. The 2024 festival will see over 400 young players from across Ireland take to the stage for two concerts to perform classical works and modern arrangements for youth orchestra in a variety of styles. Delighted to be joined in studio this evening by Joanna Crooks and Alva Kehoe. By the way, um, you can watch proceedings on rtie forward slash arena if you are so inclined. We are streaming as we broadcast. Um, Joanna, I suppose, statement of uh, fact to start out with, (laughs) a full disclosure. I have presented the, the Festival of Youth Orchestra for a number of years now. It's a wonderful day of true and real celebration of youth orchestras uh, uh, around the country it is a phenomenal showcase for these young musicians essentially that day isn't it
6: it is it's absolutely amazing and um, I've been involved in it since the very beginning since the first festival um, and um, so i I know the kind of mechanics of how the whole thing works but it's it's just a wonderful opportunity for People, especially from the peripheries I mean it's the Croke Park of, yeah. of music in Ireland you know to to perform in the National Concert Hall is probably a once in a lifetime experience for most of the young players on stage at any one festival
0: Yeah and I I mean I, I say this on a record yes. probably every year I yes. think yes. I say it It is extraordinary to think some of the players on this stage, on the stage of the National Concert Hall, will be as young as seven or eight in some of those very junior orchestras. And then at the other end of the scale, there will be players in their late teens, maybe even early 20s, who are potentially embarking on a career in music. That's the breadth of abilities that, that you could be speaking about
6: yeah it is absolutely and probably every corner of Ireland mm. I was telling Cal, Alva about the very beginning of it when there was just um, I think only 12 youth orchestras and now there's 108 of them and so everyone's only going to get a chance about every you know five or six years yeah, really yeah. so for each orchestra it's, um, it's, it's a very big deal very, and very- this project that that Alva's um, composed this special work for the three counties. It's um, it's involving four orchestras in one performance. So that's yeah, that, even better again.
0: That is mm-hmm. that is quite an extraordinary feat, mm-hmm. even getting the four orchestras onto the stage, which is another thing that I'm am amazed by year after year is just the logistics of of handling this number of young players and getting them on and off the stages is always quite a feat. But Alva, um, Joanna, mentioning your, your piece, before I ask you about the piece, Were you ever a member of a youth orchestra? Did you ever get to play in the Festival of Youth Orchestras yourself?
3: I did, yeah. I say I've kind of come full Full circle. Yeah, full circle there. When,
0: when, where and how? Um,
3: I was in Soys and Carlo Youth Orchestra for most Mm. of, uh, I think, throughout all the secondary school. And I Mm. think I performed, I was just trying to think today, I think we managed to do it twice. I think I did it when I just joined the orchestra and then towards the end. And like, it's unbelievable. You're just kind of sitting up there on the stage as like a little 12 year old being Mm -hmm. like, Oh wow! Like and then I say, like I said, to come full circle and maybe on the sort of a, not, I suppose, quite the other side of it, but it's well, it's composing really great. composing
0: this piece. Mm. So it, it, it there are a number of counties involved. Mm. You're being very um very embracing. Yeah. In this composition, <laughs> tell us exactly what you've what you've done and what you've how you've gone about doing it.
3: So I say when I heard um, about the whole project and got involved, with it, there was there's four orchestras but they're from three different counties. Mm. So we've got two based in Dublin. Carlo, I'm a proud Carlo woman myself, I <laughs> say from Carlo Youth Orchestra. And then we have Wexford as well. So we were thinking so o- Carlo and
0: Carlo and Wexford are mm. cooperating.
3: I know, yeah. It's 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 uh, very diplomatic here now but <laughs> United Nations were
0: involved <laughs> exactly. in the negotiations. yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> I have to be very careful what I say you know Um but yeah so we've got the three different counties so the three tunes that we've incorporated um, are Molly Malone Follow Me Up to Carlo and Boulavogue ah, so right. just and then kind of tying the three of them together um, arranging the melodies and incorporating them uh, into a whole new work it's just been really exciting
0: When you're composing and t- taking pieces like that for a youth orchestra mm. what are, what are the challenges for you as a composer because at one level you must want the very best sound and the sound that is in your head but also you have to take into account as I mentioned earlier you know the, the breadth of talent that will be across the various orchestras that will be playing.
3: Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I mean, writing for orchestra in and of itself is massively daunting because, mm. I mean, I don't think there is... Well, maybe there is a person alive who can play every single orchestra instrument. I, I'm certainly not that person anyway. So not too many of them, no. Yeah, there's, so there's that, of course, that you could be writing for an instrument and have something in your head that you're like, oh, yeah, this is going to sound brilliant. And then you present it to someone, it's like, no, actually, not that's you know instrument. that's not on this instrument. No, and then like you're saying, the youth orchestra. Um, one thing that I think that composers have to take into consideration when you're writing for a youth orchestra is that you mightn't always have the same standard instrumentation, or you mightn't have the same, I suppose, proportions that you would in sort in a symphonic orchestra, for mm. example. Um, just because like we were talking about this earlier certain instruments are far more popular you could end up with a huge violin section and then maybe not so many violas or you could have you know six flutes but maybe you mightn't have a clarinet and things like that. So particularly for wind and brass and percussion, you can be dealing with kind of um, unusual instrumentation or different numbers that you would have in standard things there. So I think getting to know the orchestras, talking to the conductors, and all the conductors of these orchestras have just been so brilliant. Like I've been bombarding them with emails and stuff. So um, and yeah. have you
0: have you had a, have you visited the various orchestras in rehearsal? Mm. Have you? Will will the first time that you would get to hear all of them together, will that actually be on the day or will there be a rehearsal before so, that? So,
3: yeah, there's a rehearsal there um, with four orchestras happening soon. I've also seen some of them individually and stuff. I know Carla Youth Orchestra really well because mm. I've written for them before. And Magella yeah. Swan, their director, is just an absolute powerhouse and she's been <laughs> brilliant for getting me involved and stuff. But um, yeah, hearing it all come together with the four orchestras will be absolutely incredible. I think just to hear how everything comes together. I'm um, really looking forward to that. That's happening
6: the- on that's happening on Sunday week, um, and we're kind of we've we found a point that was equidistant from the three groups. And Very democratic. and Aaron, <laughs> County Wexford, which is really almost in Wicklow, um, but it's about an hour and a bit driving for everybody, and so we'll be meeting up there. Um, on Sunday week. I mean, it sounds
0: as if you're, you're like going to be hours. there. Do you I you definitely will to? be, yeah, you yes. Don't want to miss that. Yes. But you, you're the president, the honorary president of the, uh, of the Dublin Youth Orchestras and indeed of, of I will, I are, yes, are, I am. I'm very, loyal. very fortunate. But, Talk to me a little bit about the work that you have done because uh, people may remember this television documentary from a few years back. Was it and and Yeah, that's right, in, yes. In mm-hmm. the, music the,
6: Changes Lives.
0: Yeah, Music mm-hmm. Changes Lives. Yes. These were these are young people in, in Crumlin that you started an orchestra with. Tell us about what the, your idea behind that was at the time.
6: Well, it was very simple. It was Sister Bernadette's idea that there should not be... Um, economic and social barriers to children accessing music and that's the whole concept behind the Community Centre for Music and the Arts which is now very established in Cromlin it's you know it's a it's a registered charity and a company Mm. limited by guarantee and all of these things so the future for the project is secure and I'm very happy about that.
0: And, and as well as that, and the youth orchestra, so the, the 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 school end of that has continued and it yes, course from and strength survived, and
6: the, yeah, and survived the pandemic because I think yeah, music that. everywhere took a real blow during the pandemic, but yeah, it has even, and it's carrying on the. This- the children in that school still have lessons in the community centre for music and the arts.
0: Well, CCMA St Agnes's mm-hmm. CCMA yeah. Late Starters Orchestra gives us gives us a sense that oh. it's not just the kids that no, are involved it's here. not
6: at all. The Late Starters Orchestra has a hundred and ten members. I play myself in the um, second violins in the Late Starters Orchestra. It's absolutely wonderful. It means a lot, but it also means there's a, a community, a musical community where. The children who are learning know adults who learn of yeah. all kinds of different ages. So, if
0: you can see it, you can do it. There's a yes, bit of that involved, yes, isn't it? Yes.
6: And just your neighbour or your uncle or your aunt um, play, and it makes sense then.
0: It, it strikes me, um, Alva, coming back to coming back to you on this. I mean, you mentioned about your own involvement in Carlo Youth Orchestra. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly, not everybody who's a member of a youth orchestra will go on to forge a career out as a professional musician. Not, not
3: everyone's that uh, mad, no, <laughs> <laughs>
0: or, or, or that lucky, or that talented. There are lots of <laughs> lots of aspects to it, but. W- w- there are, i I know many people in who are in totally different walks of life now, and you you they 'll talk about their youth orchestra experience mm. as a whatever as a teenager and the fun that they had doing it how you know how important is it to think of it in terms of youth orchestras not just as a a stepping stone to a, a career in music but as something else a broader thing
3: oh yeah, massively important i mean. I say you could talk about the, you know, strictly musical benefits of it all day and how it improves Mm. sight reading and all that. But like you said yourself, there's so much more to it. I say it's, you make such good friends, you know, cheesy as it sounds, all that kind of stuff. I suppose when you're playing an instrument as a teenager, there isn't all, sometimes you could be, you know, an excellent flute player or piano player or whatever it might be. But getting to play as part of an ensemble is just it's something that I think you can't really take for granted because, like I say, there's the musical benefits of of it as well, but then, say, you finish playing whatever the piece is, there's this amazing sound, and you're like, oh... I did a part of that, I was you know. I was that. part of yeah. that. <laughs> so
0: you're a member of a team. It's that whole, yeah, it's that exactly, whole joyful yeah. thing, yes. isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Like like yeah, being yeah. a member of a sports team. Yes, it's, mm. a, it's a similar type of experience. Mm-hmm. And and as I say, my, my involvement with the Irish, so with the Festival of the Youth Orchestras, it's always a day I really mm-hmm. look forward to, mm-hmm. and I'm looking forward to to the one this year as well. Thanks mm-hmm. to both of you for coming in. That's Alva Kehoe and Joanna Crooks. The 28th Festival of Youth Orchestras will take place at the National Concert Hall in Dublin on Saturday the 10th of February and you can find out full details on iayo.ie